What's up everybody and welcome. Today I am sharing a very special video from a recent 11 hour live stream that was done for the Theory Underground one year anniversary. Theory Underground is a teaching platform that I built on both iOS and Android apps, as well as an actual website. There's a sort of social media and club uh, aspect to the site, but ultimately everything is centered around the courses and the courses are centered around the research and the research is centered around an overarching plan. And so uh, with that all said, I wanna get out of the way here because I think you're probably here for the converse, the, the more important thing here, which is the interview with Dr. Leon Brenner. I couldn't be more excited for you all to see this. It's going to be on the clinical structures of psychoanalysis and autism, specifically the histories of autism theories and the different usages of the word. And so I hope that you will enjoy this interview. But if you would like to see uh, the other event that it was based in, the 11 hour live stream for the one year anniversary, then you just check out this right here and uh there you go uh with that i'll turn it over to leon hope to see you in this course because it's going to be amazing peace all right everybody welcome to theory underground i am your host david mccarricker and today we're joined by leon brenner dr leon brenner welcome how are you i'm pretty good thank you a, a pleasure and honor to have you. Um, and so, yeah, today is like sort of like this all day marathon live stream event. But mm -hmm. actually, you were the person that I was first like in the last couple of weeks, like kind of like, OK, when when are we going to have this conversation? Right. And then uh, when I realized that this day was open because I thought I was going to be traveling, I was like, mm. this is perfect. We can do it. And then I was like, you know what? to signal boost this, let's, let's do all the stuff I wanted to do in December. And, and so I love these marathon streams, but your, your work in particular has been something that I just cannot stop thinking about. And so, um, I, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm not the right person to introduce you. Yeah. I think you should do it yourself, but I will just say that my point of entry into like knowing anything about you at all is through the autistic subject a book that you published, I don't know, recently? And uh, that I, it's something that I've been listening to while working at Amazon. I only get so much from it, but um, we're, we're ultimately having you here to announce that Leon Brenner is going to be teaching the four, the, or the clinical uh, structures of psychoanalysis, Freud and Lacan, as well as the autistic subject. So everyone put your figurative or literal hands wherever you are in the world together um, to welcome Leon. Leon, um, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to this research? First of all, thanks for having me. I'm very excited about the course. Uh, so uh, I've been working a little bit to um, make, it, uh, make it interesting and um, adding some new things. So uh, adding some new factors that I've been working on recently. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I've been asked this a lot, like um, any uh, anyone who would write a book, and Dave, you know that as well. You you were asked uh, what 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 brought you to <laughs> to uh, to write about this, and it's uh, something like uh, you would ask uh, 
a very happily married couple, for instance. Like, well, how did you meet? Well, what? And people expect a very uh, fantastic story. And if it's if it's a love story, it's indeed it's always fantastic, right? It's one in a million. There is something to it. I'll summarize it. Uh, I got uh, into psychoanalysis uh, because I forgot to pay my tuition as a, as a bachelor student, and. Um, yeah, it was not very much. Well, I always was into Freud, but not uh, what some would call a fanatic. Hmm? Today, I spend uh, my professional life fully uh, in uh, engagement with psychoanalysis. Um, but yeah, I forgot to pay tuition, and uh, is, is, I could only enroll. Is that because uh, you? Is that because you? You uh, you believed the American leftist propaganda that education is free in Europe? <laughs> no, um, I guess so. <laughs> no, it's not very high. Uh, that's true, uh, but you need to pay it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I forgot to to do that. Um, I was much more forgetful at the time. And uh, it only left uh, some courses available because I was late to the party. And that's how I started being interested in psychoanalysis by accidentally studying it. Um, with autism, it was a little different. Um, it was a bit more calculated. Um, I just found it to be a, a fascinating um, word and uh, a, particularly the... Uh, the meanings, the many meanings that it, it has in different uh, discourses and uh, fields of science, uh, of culture, of uh, politics. And uh, I find it to be so I found it to be so fascinating that I decided to spend uh, many years working on it. Mm. And that's it. Uh, it's not um, it's not a personal story or, um, uh, you know, uh, something that has to do with my own personal life. It is just um my curiosity um mm. we might say this is the title of of the book that you're speaking about dave uh, um the autistic subject on the threshold of language that's uh, the full title uh it's published 2020. um it's the thresholds that i think in retrospect might have been uh, interesting for me uh, being on the thresholds um, I think is is a is already a fascinating notion. I think that got me into mm. working on autism a phenomena that is uh, in many places on the threshold. Mm. Yeah, and so this this you know we're doing this in the midst of a marathon stream, but also we're doing a very special special thing here, which is we're recording this as a separate standalone video. I think a lot of people will come to it for uh, the thumbnail that says theories of autism. And that's ultimately mm -hmm. what our topic is for this segment, not just the announcement of the course or whatever, but theories of autism. You already kind of alluded to this with the different names or, or the different mm -hmm. understandings of the term, yeah, the different understandings. Um, and so maybe that's a good way to start is to talk about like some of the common uh, usages, misconceptions, mm -hmm. and then let's talk about the history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah, let's, let's uh, give it a shot. Huh? Uh, we'll do some of it. We'll leave some for the course itself. Uh, but yeah, let's try and have some some fun. Let's uh, let's see where we get to. Um, well, let's start. So let's yeah, start with. Please. Sorry, I, 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 let's start with what my wife uh, said to me uh, earlier today. 
uh, which was, uh, are you going to ask him why everybody's autistic now? Let's start with that it's, meaning of the term, you know. It, it is a, an important question uh, for a wife to ask uh, because uh, it is true that any husband or all husbands, I'm making a wager here, but are somewhat autistic within a relationship. Uh, you know, and th this shows you that this word can be understood in so many ways. Huh? Uh, here we're speaking about the fact that uh, if you are lucky and you are in fact um, in a love relationship with uh, a, a subject that is other to you, there will be a, a misunderstandings uh, on a very profound level. And uh, let's say going contra to uh, what um, couples therapists, many couples therapists would try to do, you know, reaching a place where communication can bridge the gap between uh, the subject and the other. Uh, well, in psychoanalysis, we are somewhat uh, aware of the fact that there is no sexual relationship. Hmm? This is what uh, Lacan is, is known to famously say. But it is the fact that, the, that if it is, in fact, uh, another subject, then there is something that is left outside of your reach. Hmm? that you will never understand. This is the whole idea. Mm -hmm. uh, so some people say, and maybe justly so, about husbands that they are a bit autistic. There is something out of their reach. They don't understand, mm -hmm. which is true. Uh, and this word is used in this way. And what I want to say today, and we'll go over some, some manifestations, uh, is that, well, this is not how I use it. Hmm? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Maybe colloquially. Maybe fun. Maybe between us. Yeah. I'll tell you, Dave. You're a bit autistic. You should. Uh, you should listen more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But yes. Yeah, so so this is what uh, people might call autistic traits. Hmm? Um, and the idea that there is some type of maybe personality hmm? uh, or uh, personal qualities that. Uh, have to do, and I think this is very colloquial, uh, with autism. Mm -hmm. But again, uh, you know, autism also means um, something uh, political. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you're aware of the uh, neurodiversity movement, for instance, in, uh, in the US and worldwide, and it's, uh, it's a movement composed of people that um, argue that, uh, uh, let's say, um, syndromes like autism or or other forms of of uh, that, that other forms of uh, of psychic what what in the DSM and the ICD is called a psychic uh, or psychological illness or disease are in fact variations in the brain's uh, composition. So there are uh, neural neural neuronal variations, but and not diseases. And here the word autism gets a different meaning. It is um, a designation of a particular form of variation. And uh, it's important and it has ethical repercussions and it means something about the politics of subjectivity. Right. Uh, here we see a different meaning. Hmm? Um, also, you know, we, we, we can step a bit closer into the 
clinical domain. And, uh, you know, uh, today many people go and get an autism diagnosis. And you go to a psychologist and they spend a few hours with you and then they give you a little diploma. Hmm? (laughs) Now, this diploma might be nice to hang on the wall, hmm? but it also means something economic. It means money, yes, because uh, children get an autism diagnosis, get funding for their school. They get funding for uh, help circles. And um, this means that the signifier autism is also an economic signifier. It means something that translates to capital, to money, to actual money. And here I'm not trying to infer anything um, that might be uh, perceived as being sinister. I think this is done in in a very charitable way i've i've spoken to some colleagues who even told me that they give an autism diagnosis even if they are not sure or don't really think that that's the case but they say that this child will profit from whatever economic um support they will get from the government because of this diagnosis so you so- see that autism also eco- an economic thing. You have to say that you mean this in this more charitable way because, uh, and not sinister, because uh, there's the obvious kind of whiplash you can get for even saying something like that. Like someone might be like, oh my gosh, you're giving people this basis to doubt the diagnosis and that's dangerous and harmful. And I just want to be transparent from my standpoint. That's all part of this. There's a side of the activism of um, every movement online, especially um that's so worried about the outcome of anything that you might say uh, that the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. And uh, there's also social capital and cultural capital involved. Uh, It's not just economic because there's um, at a certain level you can go like, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm awkward and weird sometimes. And I do social faux pas, uh, but guess what? I'm autistic. So don't worry about it. And also you're a neurotypical, which is like the new cis. So it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you're, you're like, uh, which, it, which, you know, cis was the new wasp. It's just like, oh, you're like this thing at the center and that sucks because we hate the center. And so like, there's this actual thing that forms. And I have to say, like, I like individuals, not like these coagulations of like hashtags, right? Like I like, so at a certain level, the, the, the baby with the bathwater there that you're trying to honor by saying that you're trying to be charitable here is that it's also true, though. It actually can. It can help the child. Yes, absolutely. Right. OK. And that's great. But that's not the usage that you're using. Yes, this is the point. It, it helps children to receive extra funds from the school, from the government. It's it's a great thing. Yes. Uh, but again, it's it's speaking about autism. Uh, in a different way, it, it it translates in in our social systems in a different way. And and Dave, you've mentioned social capital. That's true. You know, you have celebrities that identify as being autistic. And this, as you were saying, speaking about neurotypical, etc. This brings us more into the domain of uh, uh, identity politics. And in this domain, uh, the signifier autism it carries a cultural capital it it says something about you that is not even negative it's not uh, something that one would like to hide for instance as was the case in the past 
If you were especially, and this is one of the good things about the activism is making us historically aware of how Nazis were exterminating autistic people uh, mm. actively, right? Like, uh, I don't, I mean, I, that's my understanding based off of a little bit of, I've heard about the, the, about uh, Dr. Asperger and the work that he was doing and trying to save the, the functional ones because everyone else was, was being uh, murdered, right? Yeah. And so, and, and that is the, that is the concern with when, when people are advocating for like this sort of identity politics approach that also all of its emphasis goes towards destigmatization. Mm-hmm. I, I think most of the destigmatization approaches don't work, but I think that what's driving that concern is the most admirable, honorable thing. You know, if it mm. is a genuine concern with the fact that historically this 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 not only has happened once, but happens, you know, it just mm. that people go, oh, well, you're just you're oh, because you're you're this variation. Well, you're actually just a faulty product or whatever. Uh, you know, we need we need you out of the gene pool, that whole approach. Right. So I have I do have respect at a certain level for this for this discourse that I, I just want to emphasize that because. It is a careful, touchy topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's important to emphasize. And um, um, what did I want to mention here? Uh, well, it will come back. Um, but yeah, yeah. I was I was thinking about, for instance, and we won't get into this today. But I'll just mention this: uh, that in let's say after we can develop a framework through which we can understand autism uh, in the course. We'll also think about the ways autism is treated and engaged with uh, clinically today. And the most um, prevalent form of autism treatment, let's say, uh, is uh, a behavioral, cognitive behavioral method called Applied Behavioral Analysis, ABA. And I very much go against it. I'm, I'm one of one of its uh, opposers, mm. um, mostly because I argue that I listen to autistic people who say that it was quite uh, difficult for them, uh, even tormenting the experience on some levels. Uh, but again, I'm saying that ABA practitioners are not sinister people. They're not evil people that want to hurt autistic people. They're just, um, you know, uh, are uninformed of uh, of the different dimensions that I think are important to tackle, to handle, to acknowledge when engaging in, in clinical work with autistic people. So, again, we're see we are, we have these this critique, and uh, we will see it unraveling on many levels. But again, that is not to say uh, that there's some malevolent malevolent, malevolent uh, force trying to uh, exploit or or um, undermine uh, autistic subjectivity. But that's at least how I, I view things. Mm-hmm. So, um, his, so the I, the so far it, it, historically situating this, you've kind of started with the present, and you've uh, focused on the uh, the prominence and the rise of the discussion about the neurotypical versus the 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 the, you had said neural variations but we also say divergence and so um that would be would you say that that is kind of the most popular current 
point of entry into thinking about autism? I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure. Um, I know it is popular among um, autist, many autistic people hmm? uh, because it, um, you know, it depathologizes uh, this, uh, this <laughs> let's say, a, a name for pathology in, in, a, in a diagnostic book. It uh, bestows agency upon autistic people. Uh, we might say even a, a epistemic agency of knowing what autism is, saying what autism is, rather than psychiatrists saying uh, what they are. And it acknowledges autism as a, as a way of a mode of existence rather than uh, a disability. So it's quite an empowering discourse. Um, today in academy and you know where where people do research on autism, um, none of them work in psychoanalytic field, sadly. Uh, but well, a few, a few, uh, mostly uh, we see psychologists working in in psychology departments. Um, we do see a shift in the academic discourse also. So this is something I can say, and you can see that if you read if you read sort of the progression of papers published by some prominent autism researchers, you see how it, it starts as a disorder, a disease, something to be investigated and then eradicated, in this sense, finding a cure for autism. In, and this has transformed into a discourse about the care uh, for autistic people. So you see that in academic discourse uh, as well. Uh, so that's quite interesting. Uh, but I, I would say that the neurodiversity um, discourse is more prevalent among autistic people themselves, some researchers. And we would say this kind of discourse of care, scientific discourse of care, uh, that is becoming more prevalent in the scientific community. But I mean, you can go to Google Scholar and, and look that up. We, we shouldn't bore our listeners with, with these uh, lit literature reviews, right? Right. Well, I guess so. I mean, for I'd, I'd say my, my listeners are a mixed bag. There's quite a few in there who I think that they probably are, as we'll get into, uh, mm -hmm. on the obsessive side of the neuro, the, the neurotic. And so <laughs> they would, they, they'll go, they'll go down that and they would probably listen to you talk about it for 10 hours. But, um, we've got to keep everybody in mind, I guess, when it comes to that, to this one. So, um, maybe, yeah. Uh, so, the development of, I guess my, my main question then is about the clinical structures and how autism relates to the clinical structures, because I think historically um, there's three clinical structures in psychoanalysis, and those are the neurotic, the psychotic, and the pervert. Is that right? Right. All right. And then the, uh, and then traditionally. One second. Okay. For sure. What's up, everybody? I'm going to sit here and talk to you all while Leon steps away. Oh, I don't even have to. T I was prepared to entertain people for who knows how long. So. Oh, no, I just had to <laughs> do something quick. Cool. So, yes, yeah, we're speaking about the clinical structures and let's take a step towards. Um, well, speaking about that, hmm? let's speak about the clinic. Hmm? Um. So, you know, people come, many people that come in and see me in that context, in the context of an analysis, um, 
many of them begin by saying the, these words, oh, I'm autistic. Uh, tell me I'm autistic. I know you wrote this book. Um, how about you, you, you uh, use this knowledge that you have to tell me that this is what I am, who I am, how I should be, etc. And this is what what we might call the desire, the demand for diagnosis. Hmm? Um, I have to tell you, sort of between us or the listeners, uh, without divulging any information, private information, of course, but that many of these people, uh, in fact, only after a few weeks, don't really struggle with this question of diagnosis of autism in their analysis. They do the work it's actually irrelevant uh, for them. It's not a big issue, but it starts that way. You know, it has to start in a way. There are some people that I've worked with that we have worked in the context of, of let's say, an analysis of autism. That's true. But many, well, were, as you were saying, Dave, um, obsessives looking for a word, a signifier that will put an end to their suffering. That will name it and therefore negate it. Um, this is what we might say is um, a, a request, a demand for the analyst to provide the signifiers for their identification. Mm. Uh, but you know, the work in analysis with neurotic subjects, and we'll just say it very uh, briefly here, is uh, what we might say contrary to that. Uh, the work is not to achieve identifications, but actually uh, to uh, go against identification. This is what uh, Lacan called the process of depersonalization, shedding off our identifications uh, and reaching a point where they do not function as they did previously. Um, so for me, um, when we speak about now we speak about the clinic and the structures. Autism is not even that. It's not even a diagnosis that uh, we might associate with the DSM or the ICD, these diagnostic manuals. Huh? I would even tell you that if someone is very uh, insistent in receiving a diagnosis, I do have the ICD on my shelf. And if someone really struggles, I tell him, look, take the book. It's not very thick. Hmm? Take the book, go over the, the diagnoses, see what works for you, and you can come back next week and we can agree that that, it, that is it and we can put it to the side. <laughs> hmm? uh, so again, this is not what I'm referring to when I'm re referring to autism in, from a clinical uh, perspective. So what am I actually uh, speaking about? When I speak about autism and I do view it as a clinical category, as a structural category, as you were saying, like neurosis, perversion, psychosis, sort of my shtick, as they say, uh, in previous years was to say, autism is a fourth one. We cannot reduce it to the first three elaborated by uh, psychoanalysts in the past. Um, when I say that, I refer to a clinical category as one thing only, as a category that um, assists us as analysts in directing the treatment. Mm -hmm. This is it. So when I say aut autistic, neurotic, I mean a particular category that will dictate a different type of treatment. This is most simply. 
in another way, maybe in a more psychoanalytic way, I might say, it is a category that will dictate how the transference is handled. This is a Freudian way to say it. Um, if we say it in a Lacanian way, it is a category that will dictate what position exactly will the analyst take within the transference. And the analyst doesn't take the same position in the transference with the neurotic as the analyst takes with the psychotic, because that could be catastrophic. Yes, that could be catastrophic. We can get into that if you want. And my argument is, in fact, that when I say that autism is a singular subjective structure, I mean that it necessitates a distinct direction to the treatment. Mm. That, it's it. that is it. And look, this, is, this, is, this might be a bit um, uh, counterintuitive because what I'm saying is nothing of the order of ontology here. Hmm? I know you, your listeners ha have some knowledge of philosophy, so I allow, I allow myself to use these big, uh, big words. Uh, I, what I mean in, in the fact that autism has nothing to do with ontology for me is the fact that autism is not something, and I'll be a bit provocative here, is not something that manifests itself outside of the psychoanalytic clinic. It is a category for the direction of the treatment. It is not that there are autistic, psychoanalytically autistic people walking in the world. Yeah. Autism exists within the transference, within the psychoanalytic transference and the way it is utilized. And when we leave the practice, when we leave the clinic, this category loses its meaning. It is a bit senseless, uh, psychoanalytically speaking. We might say then, if it is not an ontological category, we might say that it is an ethical category. It is a category that has to do with the ethics of psychoanalysis, how one should practice analysis, how would the analysis and the analyst partake in psychoanalysis. It says something about the way you do it, how you should do it, with a particular category uh, at hand. Hmm? That's fascinating. I did not know that. Um, so a, a million questions come to mind. Um, and I kind of want to just start with uh, this question between the ethics of psychoanalysis and ontologizing the concepts of psychoanalysis is one that I turn to frequently because there is a sense in which Lacan has implicit ontology. Everyone does, um, right? There's, but you know, how much is he, is he doing ontology? I mean, I don't think so. But you know, someone like Alenka Zupancic or Slavoj Žižek, clearly they are. Um, and they'll use the concepts, uh, but at the level of the the discourse that you're engaging with this term most seriously, you are saying no. It's it's strictly a use a useful category. It's just it's just telling. It's it's just a how to approach and how to um, to ultimately play my role as an analyst. Um, but then, would you then also say? That 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 the other three terms, the other three structures, are also the exact same thing. There's not neurotics walking around. There's not psychotics walking around. There's not no. These are 
hopefully useful in terms of art for within the actual practice itself. Yes, I mean, psychoanalytically speaking, there are no neurotics walking around. For Woody Allen, there are. You can watch his movies. Uh, he is the uh, epitome of that. He is the... Uh, he of the which one? That. Which one? Woody Allen. No, but wh wh which, is, which is his structure? Oh, the neurotic one, the right? Neurotic he's one. he's okay. the, the, the pure neurotic. Uh, it is so pure that it's comical. Huh? Uh, and you see that. And I mean, but this is again, neurosis as interpreted from a different type of discourse, a different perspective, not what I would say a psychoanalytic one. And when I say this, I mean, and I, I, I will maybe um, oppose a little bit what you were saying earlier, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong here, but um, I think this is the way uh, Lacan viewed psychoanalysis. Because, um, you know, in his lectures, and most of his publications are, in fact, lectures or papers that were derived from talks that he gave, um, they were all aimed at psychoanalysts. Uh, the audience was psychoanalysts. At a certain point, they, they became quite popular and then some other people came. He was, he was, he was, he was forced into the public in a sort of sense as, uh, uh, Todd McGowan was just talking about earlier, like the, I didn't even know about that. Like he had two teaching outlets institutions and then lost them both within the same year. And then, uh, Althusser's institution was basically like, well, you have to make it public if you're going to teach here. And so it's like, he kind of explodes into the public, you know, and it's like, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, maybe we cannot say that he didn't like it. I, I wouldn't venture to say that. But again, that's Lacan, the person. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about Lacan's psychoanalysis and its ethics. And I think that uh, psychoanalysis for him is an ethics that is applied by psychoanalysts. And he's very explicit, he's been very explicit about this many times, uh, going against what he called applied psychoanalysis, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, taking a psychoanalysis and maybe using it, abusing it a little bit in uh, describing uh, phenomena that uh, are not psychoanalytic. Hmm? Uh, so, I mean, everyone can watch a movie, read a book and speak about the Oedipal uh, character of the of the relationship between the characters, etc. But this is kind of like, you know, what Karl Popper had sort of said in his critique of psychoanalysis, you know, he was saying this is a, a theory that is completely not refutable. You cannot refute it because you can find it everywhere. He was also critical of Marxism, right? Popper, he was saying, look, right, right. we can see that everywhere. And this is for me, not a good theory. And I think that Popper's critique, it bites, it, it's interesting, but I think he speaks of applied psychoanalysis rather of, of psychoanalysis itself. But mm. that is not to say, and again, I don't, I don't want to get to trouble with, uh, with some colleagues and you've mentioned, uh, people from the Ljubljana school and mm -hmm. that do a lot of very interesting and important work. Uh, and you mentioned Todd, who does amazing work in the field of, of uh, film studies. Um, this is not to say two things. Uh, first of all, and we see Lacan doing it as well, Lacan engaged a lot with philosophy, with literature, with art, 
but he didn't do that in order to say, oh, look, um, this this is the Oedipus there. He went into these fields in order to learn something new within psychoanalysis. And I think this is not applied psychoanalysis, but this is how psychoanalysis engages with the cultural in order to develop itself. And this is due to the fact, this very simple fact that Lacan speaks about, and I think Lacanian analysts abide by, the fact that for Freud, the unconscious is not um, an object that is solely individual. It is not um, idiosyncratic per se, uh, because it always involves within it something of the cultural. The unconscious is a very interesting type of object because it, it is on the one hand in individual, but on the other hand, it's also cultural. And uh, I think Lacan uses the Mobius strip to demonstrate this kind of interesting non-duality. I, I don't know how, how you would call that exactly. And this means that well, there is something to do with psychoanalysis when we think about about culture. Huh? So I'll make mm. this uh, little uh, disclaimer. Um, but again, mm, if you ask me what is ethically psychoanalytical, um, well, we sh can surely say that the direction of the treatment is is what is at stake for the ethics of psychoanalysis. So I like I like this distinction. Um, between, I, I've been I've been thinking a lot with this this distinction between um, the theory and using the theory in a more philosophical way and this applied psychoanalysis. And actually, when we were on tour here in the states, which is like the precursor to the European tour that is coming up in in May, and so we're looking forward to seeing you in Berlin on that tour. By the way, everybody wanted to get my little plug in there. But when we were in LA area uh for the tour um uh catherine Liu from irvine college uh author of virtue hoarders she was there uh and and she she did a, a presentation on uh how much she stood to benefit from analysis and how much she appreciates analysis and also she was doing this as a critique of the libyana school not not i mean it was more like a kind of like she didn't like take it on full, full frontal. It was more, she was more doing like this homage to her analyst who had passed away. Um, and, and just defending the idea of this as a clinical practice, you know, and, um, she definitely doesn't, does not see the value in the, the film studies usage of it or in the, the, the literature, the, 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 I mean, it gets used in debate clubs. It gets used in literary criticism. It gets used in all kinds of things. And uh, she's, she's just like, no, it's a bunch of virtue hoarding nonsense. When people are using it this way, they're just using fancy words and it's bullshit. Is that, I'm, I might be mischaracterizing her. Sorry, Catherine, if I am, but I think that's basically kind of the, the sense of it. People in the chat, let me know if you think that there's anything I'm missing there, but, um, for me, that's it's it is important um, the, the 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 idea of the practice. Um, but taking it back uh, to your, you raised the question of whether you were actually arguing with me or not with the uh, I with what I'd said about uh, Lacan having an ontology. I just wanted to say I, I'm trying to say that he's not doing ontology. 
And then I've, 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 I've argued that with theory, theory friends or fellow travelers in the past. Um, but from this sort of Heideggerian standpoint that I can't really get away from at a certain level, everyone is always already disclosing being everyone is ontological. Everyone has or is ontological in the sense that like you have a fundamental default, uh, uh, uh assumption, a set of presuppositions as to what constitutes reality and what makes it what it is and that, that the word is and when you say is am are any of these ways of saying it obviously in german there's a bunch of other ones but like that they're all ultimately getting at um you've got some kind of a sense for what it means to be and that's all i'm saying is that lacan has a sense for what it is to be but that's not his practice that's not what he's doing and so i i think i agree with you um my, and I guess you do see a value though, or at least like there's, there's a lot of great stuff coming from the, the applying it to culture, applying it to society. Uh, but I guess I, this all kind of culminates in the big question. Like, are you proposing that it's not advantageous for, for instance, me to think of myself as an obsessional neurotic and to think of someone else as a hysteric neurotic and then have questions about whether someone might be psychotic. Like, are you saying that like, yeah, these are four analysts, me who's like, this is all really interesting. I'm not doing myself a service thinking within these categories. Well, you're thinking about it in a different way. And as, as I started, this is how I started our talk today, you know, saying that thinking about autism economically is not something that is, you know, morally reprehensive. It, it is, um, on the contrary, I think it is uh, morally advantageous uh, to give money to children who are struggling. And again, I, so I'm saying thinking about autism as a structure of society, for instance, I, I don't know. I'm not saying it is something wrong or useless, but I'm just saying that it will not be um, a psychoanalytic engagement with this psychoanalytic concept. Mm. Huh? Mm. Again, it is somewhat agnostic. Uh, I'm not making um, a normative uh, judgment here. I'm just saying that descriptively saying that it will be um, a different uh, a different signified that you are engaging with here. It's the same signifier. Uh, but the concept that will do work in your mind is not a concept that we might uh, equate with this ethical category that we call autism within the scope of, a, of an analysis. And Dave, let me plug in just something a little bit just so we won't forget what you said earlier and, and I could uh, reply um, about being like you were saying and and I appreciate Heidegger I, I think it's a he has a very interesting philosophy um, but you know psychoanalysis is not about what is the object of psychoanalysis is not an object that is it is not it is exactly an object that is not Hmm? It is not being that Lacan is interested in. He's interested in non-being. Nothingness. Is non-being uh, what he calls a manque à être, huh? a lack of being, a want hmm. to be, hmm? something that is not but wants to. Hmm? 
this is what is interesting for for analysts let's say being would be a question of the ego what the ego is who am i who am i in society who am i in relation to other bodies it, this is a question of signifiers that fill up in this place of non-being yeah the ego is a failed attempt to fill up what what is non-being hmm? uh, so for Lacan he says that explicitly I think in his uh, paper on the direction of the treatment which is one of my favorites um, that uh, psychoanalysts don't don't are not interested in being in in this sense hmm? but more he says it's much more difficult for the analyst not to take the place of being for the an analysis but actually it's much more difficult to take the place of non-being mm -hmm. a place where there is no word there is no meaning that could designate sufficiently and we might say this is uh, the problematic uh, notion of the desire of the analyst for Lacan right because it is uh, opaque it is uh, completely uh, indeterminable well and it is a driving force for for analysis then so then my 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 big question follows from a fear okay it's it's a it's just a, it's a knee jerk like okay well if you're going to come along and say yes there's these three structures there's always been these three structures They're, they've been very useful in psychoanalysis but there's a fourth structure um but then say well what ultimately makes it this fourth thing is that it's useful in the clinic for dealing with something that's specific that needs to be dealt with in a different way than the traditional approaches to dealing with the other three um Yes, and historically that was psychosis, right? It was uh, people were tending to deal with uh, the autistic subject as a psychotic, which was a not good, not good. It was not a great um, outcome. And so you're saying, no, there's definitely needs to be a different approach here. Uh, but then the fear is that that results in um, anybody who might be looking into any other thing. Oh, I, I do borderline personality disorder or I do multiple personalities or I do whatever. It's the point that the DSM-5, because it has so many niche categories, um, any one of those, someone might come along and go, well, well that, that one should be dealt with different than how these have been traditionally dealt with because obviously the schizophrenic or the borderline personality or the bipolar or like that any of these could have been called this, the, the, you know, treated as a psychotic or something like that as well. Um, and so it, be, it uh, I guess it, the, the dams could break and then uh, all of these uh, different areas in the DSM-5 that are diagnostic uh, categories, not psychoanalytically informed, will then become something that people are calling structures. That's the that's okay. the fear, and so they, I guess that yeah, that sets up the question. I I, I forgot that there was a question, um, <laughs> and the question is uh, the difference between a diagnostic category and a structure. Right, right. Uh, it's a very good question, um, and um, I'll start by saying that you only see these manuals moving towards uh, a more, let's say. Um, utilitarian perspective in recent years so uh, where 
you see, for instance, in the ICD-11, the ICD is the DSM version for Europe. Um, so uh, the ICD-11 that came up just a year ago, uh, you see that um, they sort of took out some categories because they were saying, yeah, that's great. These are sort of taxonomies that we enjoy doing, but they don't mean anything different in terms of handling these people. So we speak about a lot of personality uh, disorders. Um, you know, they had a historionic personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, la la la. And now they're out of the book. Um, but here, I think that the way that um, these manuals are, are aimed at, at being used is, first of all, in terms of, and I'll say it, medication. So, first of all, they're manuals that um, I think um, are in charge of distributing the capital that goes into uh, well, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, again, that's not saying that there's a sinister, necessarily a sinister psychiatrist standing there and wanting to, uh, you know, get some people rich because these no. drugs have effect on people. They, they clearly affect the body in a very yeah. drastic way. They change many things about the body, but it's a lot about that, the question of, of this type of treatment. Uh, and then I think that what what... I, I might use Lacan's words in order to, to make a distinction here between the structural perspective in psychoanalysis and the sort of um, behavioral diagnostic perspective of, of these um, uh, manuals uh, in two, on two levels. First, I think that, and Lacan makes this distinction, he says that the analyst does not direct the patient they direct the treatment. So this is one, uh, a, a, I think, crucial difference between, let's say, I would say psychotherapists working with these uh, uh, manuals in comparison to, 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 to those psychoanalysts that the psychoanalysts, well, at least some schools in psychoanalysis, because definitely the most of the schools come to direct the patient, but there's a very um, important uh, position that the analyst takes uh, that he is not there to, uh, let's say, push the person in a particular direction. Hmm? The analyst is there to handle the transference, to maintain it as the driving force of the analysis. Hmm? Uh, that's uh, a, first, a first thing. And the second thing is that structural diagnosis in psychoanalysis is uh, does not um, base itself on apparent beha behavior. Hmm? So, for instance, you know, there's a list of behavioral categories in the DSM that you'll have to observe with your patient in order to diagnose them as being psychotic, uh, being schizophrenic in, in, this, in this particular category. Uh, one of them is delusions. Uh, a second one is hallucinations, uh, for instance. Hmm? Uh, ego disturbances, uh, depersonalization, disorientation, all of these categories. Hmm? Uh, now, while it's true that many psychotic uh, uh, patients suffer from hallucinations, it is also true that uh, some neurotic patients suffer from hallucinations. Hmm? Uh, so, 
the problem with these kind of diagnostic uh, perspectives is that they solely rely on the question of observable behavior. Whereas um, in psychoanalysis, one makes a diagnosis not because the patient says, I had a hallucination, or not because the patient is delusional in one sense or another. Uh, one pays attention uh, to the way, um, I, I want to say it a bit more simply, um, to the way the logic of the world is constructed from the standpoint of the patient itself. We might say the particular relationship that one takes to a world that they construct themselves. If we want to be a bit less simple, uh, less general, more specific, that is, uh, you can say that we pay attention to the way language is used uh, to compensate for um, an inherent deficiency, an inherent problematic in human existence. Mm, mm -hmm. Language is used in different ways in order to attempt to to bridge that gap. We can get in, in, in the, we can go in that direction if you want. That is exactly, exactly the uh, direction that I want to go because I feel like the whole question of the DSM-5 or the ICD-11 um, and on the one side, the psychiatric industry good, bad, and ugly. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about is the experimentation of drugs, which is, I mean, they're, they're all being experimented with, which means that like working class and middle class children are ultimately guinea pigs, um, which is for me a big problem, uh, if just from a class position. Uh, but also there's lots of good. There's lots of good and some people really need their meds and I, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, setting aside like the critique of uh, psychiatry um, there's also of course like the astrologization of the categories because people it, it's the same way you hand the, pe the person the book okay read the okay, I'll give you the diagnosis whatever um, people do that already right like, that's the point um, if they if they're coming to you and they're like I have this okay well they've done some looking around on the internet probably at this point um, but to set all of that aside like the structure um, uh, one of the things I like about the idea of the, the of a structure coming out of like a sort of structuralist background, whether or not you think that Lacan was a structuralist or not, like having an orientation to that as a sort of background condition, um, there is this question of uh, outside of like a taxonomy, which is like the diagnostic approach. What makes a structure a structure is th these aren't singular in the sense that they are isolated out kind of oh this appears over here and it's just we can look at it and then this appears over here no their singularity is structured and then that and then the 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 traditional three structures are structured in a relation to language is that correct is that ultimately what it comes down to and what you were basically just saying well that's uh, the means uh, uh, through which structure is formed Mm. It's through language. But again, I, I mean this in a very um, a much more rudimentary way. It's not language as the English language. 
it's not that one is structured uh, according to the English language. Um, we can think about it, um, let's say, you know, very young babies theoretically uh, experience a world, uh, but um, record no memory of it, at least not a conscious memory of it. If we want to sort of hype, make a, a thought experiment, let's think of, of these very, very early young babies. And I don't think that is the case, but just for the sake of this thought experiment, there's something like a lens of a camera without a film, right? They, they, they see the world, the, uh, the photons go through their eyes. It, it, it goes through some, you know, there are some system that they go through, but they're not recorded anywhere. There's no means to record them. And let's say language operates, language in the way that I perceive it, at the moment where something is recorded. And this something is not necessarily a memory. It is something, it is a line, it is a division, it is something, it is something very, very basic that only means that something happened in the real, let's say, or something happened uh, and it gains a certain existence within the chronology, history, existence world of, of the subject. Now, it doesn't have to be that I've seen a lion and now I have a picture of a lion on my brain. This is not what I mean. Mm -hmm. I mean that there was an experience and something was recorded of it. Something, it could be a one or a zero. Something was recorded. Language is the means uh, we use to record something. So this is what I mean with language. And, and this is why it's very easy to understand what I mean here in terms of, well, language determines structure because structure is what remains. Structure is something that remains from point A to point B. And in order for something to remain, to, to persist, uh, something has to be recorded. And language is what records. Basically, that's the case. Uh, and there are different ways to, to use language in order to make these very early, let's say, records. Uh, Freud spoke about it in terms of fixation. He, he was uh, much more talented uh, in, in making us sort of grasp his, his ideas because he was saying there are fixations at an early age. Right? He says there's the drive. The drive operates. It, it develops in a way that is uh, unforeseeable. And at a certain moment, boop, it stops developing and it's stuck at a, at the same point because something is fix, fixated and it keeps working in the same way forever. <laughs> That's a, at least, a, well, let's hope that analysis can do something with that. But Freud says that there is a fixation. A fixation is this kind of, of inscription. It, and Freud says it's not an inscription of an idea. It's not that you have this sort of an idea, a particular fantasy. Uh, something is inscribed, he, he says, the drives are something in between the idea and the body. Mm. It, it is not something that is intellectual and it is not something that is corporeal. It is on the threshold as we started this, this talk. Mm. Right. Mm. So language is exactly that thing that is inscribed on the threshold of the body and, and the idea. Mm. And if you wish, I'll give you an even more compelling example okay. right now, if, if you'll allow me. Yeah, oh, please. Uh, yeah, so it, this is, um, 
This is a, an idea I borrow, well, I borrow from Lacan, who borrows this uh, from a philosopher called Urkskuhl. Uh, he's a German, um, I think he was, um, he well, anyways, he was into uh, theorizing about um, species, about animals. Hmm? Ethnologist, yeah, and uh, he he wrote uh, many interesting uh, papers and books about um, ticks, for instance. He, he has a very a very interesting example about the tick that is sort of famous. Um, he says that uh, the tick lives in its own environment. Uh, he there's a word in German that that is used here that is useful. It's called uh, Umwelt, U-M-W-E-L-T, uh, Umwelt. And in German, you have the word Innenwelt, which is the inner world, let's yeah, say. Yeah. There's the Außenwelt, the outer world. And then there's the Umwelt. Now, Umwelt is translated to English as environment. Right. But you'll find it in French as milieu. So you have... Oh. Uh, for speaking of milieu. So it's something that is, let's say, a more domesticated universe. It is a universe that, according to Urskul, belongs to a particular species. So he speaks about the Umwelt of the tick. And he says that the tick has an Innenwelt, which is composed of her in, its instincts, the, in, the tick's instincts. Uh, the tick can smell a particular secretion a chemical secretion that has to do with mammals sweat <laughs> and it can sense heat and it can smell the skin and when it's on the, an animal's skin it will go to a particular dark place hmm? and it will lodge its its teeth into the the skin and start sucking blood and it can taste the blood hmm? uh, and what he's saying is that the instinctual world of the tick and the appropriate behaviors that we see it um, ex ex expressing is specific to the tick itself. So he says the tick lives in an Umwelt, which is a tick Umwelt. It's not the Umwelt of humans. We th see things in three dimensions. Yeah, We hear things. Yeah? We are situated in a world that is humanized. We have our own Umwelt. And Urskul was saying that every animal has a different Umwelt. We do share the Außenwelt, we share this, let's say, hypothetical universe, but there is an environment that is purely human, and this is where we live in. Yes, whatever we can perceive of, we can conceive of, is necessarily uh, part of our Umwelt. Hmm? Now, why, why have I rambled on about this? Um, in order to give you an example and then give you a counterexample. So I want to give you an example for um, a wild animal. And when I say wild, I mean here not, you know, not that it goes wild, but that it is um, surviving in the wild. It doesn't need anything. It's born into the world, into the Umwelt, and its instincts are already fit to ensure its survival and procreation. This, let's say, is the epitome of natural selection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is what uh, evolutionary uh, theorists dream about, you know, this beautiful bird. And it's, uh, it, it's born and it's already set, it's fit. 
and it will survive and procreate and it will be beautiful. Hmm? So this is a, a wild animal. And let's say that the perfect wild animal, which is a hypothetical animal because no such animal exists. Um, I'll give you an example. There's a particular type of beetle in Australia, which is wild nat naturally, uh, that went extinct because instinctually it was compelled to have sex with beer bottles. Uh, they looked too much like their mates and they would mate with beer bottles and the species went extinct because of all the Australians that threw uh, beer caps. No, uh, no, no, no. For well, real? This is you, real? You can, I, I, I swear that I read it in a very interesting uh, article <laughs> that I can send you. This uh, is what's happening with people today with pornography. <laughs> Well, for you, for humans, it, 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 it must not surprise us, and, and I'll get to that in a second. But I'm just saying that there is no such thing as a purely wild animal, but let's imagine that there is, in order to say the following thing. A wild animal can be described as an organism where the Innenwelt and the Umwelt are in complete, let's say, harmony. There is a relationship between them that is very, very close. An animal is born and is ready for its umwelt. If you see uh, a horse uh, giving birth, uh, you'll see that the little horse, it already walks around. It, it sniffs the world. It's somewhat ready for the umwelt. But when we speak about people, about humans, that's definitely not the case. Babies are born underdeveloped, half-baked, if you set a baby free in the wild uh, after it's born, it will not walk around, it will not sniff around, it will die. Yes, there will n no human will survive whatsoever without very close care. Humans are born, we might say, with a, a gap, with a rupture between the Innenwelt and the Umwelt. Our, our hardwired instincts are not sufficient at all in order to get us in connection with our Umwelt. We are born with this gap. And what I argue is that language is the means through which we are able to suture this gap. And I use this word suture because it's not a mending, it's not a bridging. It is somewhat something that is somewhat uh, defective. It is a compensation. It is not a solution huh? because, uh, you know, well, you know it, right? You said you are neurotic. Huh? Uh, life is always, uh, is always a piece of shit, right? This is uh, always be, behind the corner is a piece of shit. Huh? This is how, how it goes. Uh, but I think, you are not wrong when we when we say this psychoanalytically. There is always a gap between the Innenwelt and the Umwelt in language, in this very wide sense, in the way that it makes inscriptions that enable us to do something that will that will uh, let's say suture our instinctual hardwired dimension and the Umwelt, the humanized world. Uh, language enables us to do this. Mm. And when I speak about clinical structures, I mean, uh, I, I discuss particular ways to do with language uh, in order to create this suture between the Innenwelt and the Umwelt. 
every subject is born with this rupture. Every human is born with this rupture and we do something with it. We do something with it by relying on language. In psychoanalysis, we are dealing with subject that did something with it using language, but something went wrong. Whatever they did is not working anymore and the work with them will have will um, determine itself on the basis of the way that they use language to do mm. with this uh, rupture that's excellent and with our final 10 minutes here i'm gonna cease asking questions and uh allow uh someone else to ask a question actually um my fellow traveler michael downs aka mikey for the people here at theory underground um has a blog called the dangerous maybe and he writes philosophy he writes theory he's studied it for over 20 years um and he had he studied it for a long time before actually going into the labor force and since then he's been like a wage laborer due to his conditions the i only say all of that because like the ultimate goal with theory underground one of the big ones is to employ him full time so he can quit his stupid warehouse gig that keeps him away from the theory that he loves. Um, but, you know, he's the one who's ultimately taught me Lacan. Um, so every one of my stupid questions is his fault uh, for not. I'm just kidding. No, he's he's actually uh, not responsible, but, you know, has made it so that I am able to approach a lot of these concepts. Uh, and he's taught a lot of us. In fact, uh, there's a lot of videos for free on my channel. And for Christmas, I am re-releasing all of the full, uh, basically, lectures that he gave me um, on this channel. Anyway, so setting that aside, um, Mikey's got a question for you. I'm going to play it. It's a voice message that he sent me from work. He's at work listening to us right now. Um, and so let's, let's, let's hear what he has to say. Three, two, one. Hey Dave, hey Leon, uh, just want to say really great talk, really have enjoyed it. I'm at work right now, so I have, I've been listening, I've been in and out with it, but I'm going to go back and listen to all of it later on, but uh, really enjoying this, great stuff on autism and the clinical structures. I, You know, you, you guys kind of touched on Zizek and the Ljubljana school. Leon, my question for you is, if we do think more in Zizekian terms uh, for a moment. What do you think about if we say a certain institution is hysterical or a certain political movement is perverted? Because um, I am like my, my my thinking, my work is more rooted in uh, Zizekian critique of ideology and Todd McGowan's work on ideology and capitalism and so i i do this whole like social theory in combination with psychoanalytic theory um but that's really kind of the core of where i'm at with theory and but with somebody like yourself who has spent so much time thinking in terms of the clinic i'm i'm curious to know what you think about you know this thing like well uh, you know political institutions or political figures oh you know you can say trump's a uh a, a figure of the pervert okay well is he a sadist is he a masochist right when we do this stuff um 
like I, I'm just curious to see what you think of of this aspect of doing social theory from this Lacanian perspective. Which I mean, it, at some point we we start to, if we keep thinking along these lines, we go, well, how much is Lacan and how much is Zizek, right? Um, because Zizek always just uses Lacan and just uses Hegel, uh, uses these names and uses concepts they developed. Sometimes it's easy to forget that Zizek is doing things with these concepts that Lacan and Hegel themselves didn't do. So yeah. Uh, okay. This is getting a little too long here, but yeah, I'm just interested in your thoughts on how we apply, um, the, the psychoanalytic concepts to, uh, institutions and political figures and stuff like that. At least he apologized for the long message, you know, like sometimes you get people, they go on a lot longer than that, like me, but anyway, no, let's, um, I feel like you already, you kind of have touched on this, but I don't, I don't think you've really talked about like the actual, uh, the value that you do see in it. If you see some value in it. Yeah, let's touch it a little bit more. Hmm? Uh, so I, I was I was saying that um, what is so interesting about the unconscious for Freud, which is the object of psychoanalysis, this is the object of this um, particular one might say science practice. Huh? This is its object. Huh? And, you know, an object defines a science. Uh, and in this sense, uh, psych the object of psychoanalysis has nothing to do with the object of psychiatry, for instance. Yeah, uh, The object of psychoanalysis is a, a heterogeneous object that has no designation, that cannot be pinned down. Yeah? And this is why um, one says that uh, the analyst, that an analyst can only strive to become an analyst, uh, first of all, through their own analysis, because there is no knowledge that you can acquire in the university that will teach you about the object of psychoanalysis or that will give you a familiarity with it. Hmm? One becomes familiar with the unconscious uh, in analysis. It is an experience, uh, an experience, uh, even an experience of the body, one might say, rather than intellectual experience. Huh? And this is something that many an analysts struggle with who come to analysis in order to engage with some type of analytic uh, pursuit. But again, I'm reducing this to different trajectories. So mm -hmm. uh, let's speak about neurotic subjects that come to engage with uh, within an intellectual pursuit. Uh, but what is so interesting about this object, as I was saying, is that it is not purely individual. Uh, it is uh, also has to do with culture, with the big other. As Lacan was saying, yeah, there is one is always appealing to the big other. Even when uh, Robinson Crusoe is on the on the island, or even better, uh, Tom Hanks is on the island. Uh, he is addressing another in his thoughts, in his fantasies, in his in, in whatever is going on, and eventually he epitomizes it in this ball. If you remember this little uh, volleyball that he uh, that he engages with, um, but Wilson, this yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, this means something very interesting for psychoanalysis, and then also uh, for. Uh, Mike, right? Mike Mikey. is asking the question. Yes. Um, 
for psychoanalysis, it's very important because it means that the subjects that we engage with in the clinic will change when society changes. So this means that we will see different uh, for symptom formations. We will see different ways to relate to the signifier. We will see different ways to, as we said, do with language in order to suture the gap between the Innenwelt and the Umwelt. There is no promise that we will forever stay with the um, uh, Austrian hysteric uh, of Freud's time. Mm -hmm. I myself have not encountered so many uh, analysis that fall into this particular uh, category. We might say that something changed and this dictates a change in psychoanalysis itself. So you see the change in culture changes the psychoanalytic praxis. And this is where we must theorize about this relationship. Mm. Uh, and for instance, I'll give you a, a very pertinent example that in the time of Freud and the time of many psychoanalysts, even in the US after the Second World War, um, there were particular forms of, of interpretation that were uh, very powerful. One would come to the analyst and they would, the analyst would tell and he would say that he's fighting with a friend, I don't know, whatever, and the analyst would say, look, what you are clearly doing is insisting on denying some homoerotic uh, urges that you have. Hmm? And that would blow their mind. They were like, oh my God, uh, that is, and they will start associating about something that they didn't associate about before. Today, when someone comes to see me, for instance, uh, and, and, and partake in an analysis, you know, I don't even, it's not that I even say it, the, the, the analysis will say it to you. Oh yes, I fought with my friend yesterday and this is because I have uh, repressed homosexual urges. You know, it's so ingrained in culture that these interpretations, they've lost their value. And today in the, in the Lacanian orientation, we have to be, uh, to be uh, inventive in thinking about new ways uh, to interpret, to intervene. Hmm? And this shows you culture changes, psychoanalysis change. So we must theorize about that. That's for me. But that goes the other way as well. Hmm? So that goes the other way as well, right? Because when the subject changes, we can then infer something of the cultural as well. But what I'm saying is that you need to do a lot of work uh, in order to, to make that um, viable. Uh, and not, uh, let's say, fall into this category of applied psychoanalysis. Because uh, if it is about showing that what, what I've already theorized here is also valid here, I'm not sure this is what is so important about the work that Zizek is doing and about the work that Todd McGowan is doing and mm. about the work that Alenka Zupancic is doing. What they're doing is something that I, I think is very similar to what Lacan is doing uh, with these fields that he engages with. He reads Descartes, for instance, mm -hmm. but he doesn't read them in order to systematically show how his philosophy is valid within psychoanalysis. He reads them, he, he turns them on its head in order to say something interesting and pertinent within psychoanalysis. So I think this is what mm -hmm. we see Zizek doing, this is what we see Zupancic and Todd and many others that yeah, we just mentioned their names, but there's right. so many others that are doing this work, I think is extremely valuable. And I, I read it myself. 
and I've just um, just recently um, uh, wrote a review about Todd's uh, book on on the racist fantasy, which I found very interesting, and I even teach a course about it in in the university. This shows you that there are products that are very um, important uh, in this field. And again, I'm not I'm not uh, venturing to say that they worth they're worthless. On the contrary, I mm -hmm. think they're very interesting and give us new, shed new light on these phenomena that might enable us to, as we see in psychoanalysis, create new associations. That's and wonderful. I think this is what what Todd is trying to do. Let's say with his book, create new thinking, new associations about what racism is. Uh, and what we think about it and what is anti-racism. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad that you use those three particular names, uh Zizek, McGowan, Zupancic, because they are the three from that school who actually have engaged with and participate in Theory Underground to some degree. Um and I'm glad that that means that there's not some beef uh, between uh, your approach and them and I, that makes me very happy even though I mean beefs can be uh, illuminating contradictions are worth tarrying with, uh, but as long as they're respectful and 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 always uh, strive to find that value uh, in that project, then of course um, that's where it's at. And so, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'll just say uh, for folks, um, as far as the course goes, uh, it begins in February on the last um, what is it? The last Wednesday of February. And then it goes for uh, three more Wednesdays after that in March. And uh, yeah, you can sign up at Theory Underground. Um, I, would, I would love to bring you back before then um, for a follow-up. There will be a lot of questions. There's been a lot of discourse here in the live chat that we haven't been able to get to. Shout out to the big Signorelli, AKA Andrew Flores from The Vanishing Mediators. I know that he's had you on his channel before, um, as well as everybody else who's been engaging with him in the in the conversation, they bring up really important questions that I'd like to hopefully get to in the future. No, I haven't seen it on the chat here. It's I, I, I should have looked somewhere else. Oh, I don't I don't share the the actual live oh. chat with uh, with the I don't want you distracted, you know, so it's uh, it's on the YouTube side. You're just in the Zoom side right now. So, okay. yeah. Got to keep them separated like that song, you know, but all right. Thank you so much. And we'll see you in the near future. Take care. Good. Okay. We talk soon. All right. Bye bye. Thinking is super uncool and that's why you should do it. It's just like almost anything that's like cool anymore. Um, yeah, it just sucks. And I think that's like what the underground movement has always been about is just like seeing what's in the mainstream being like, it ain't there and kind of like cobbling something together, you know? And, and yeah, it's a little mismatched, but that's like its beauty. We cannot do direct revolution, but the only way to lay the foundation for it is to do what you are doing to move the underground. It's a theoretically correct title. Welcome to Theory Underground, where workers with earbuds can find genuine liberation from necessity. Research at Theory Underground focuses on what is most important for understanding our current situation. Theory of the subject, capital, time energy theory, critical media theory, CMT, and the most essential critiques necessary for understanding why the theory, ideology, and common sense of influencers left to right misses the mark. We bring primary texts from leading lights of diverse fields to bear on topical issues 
and works popular in our current world. Theory Underground is a publishing house as well as lecture course and social media platform. You've been reading Underground Theory. Yes. And, uh, Amazing book. I'm a publisher and an editor. I run and review books. Literally, it's my living. This is the best edited collection I've ever read. Jesus Christ. Seriously. This is a little experiment in what I, David McCarricker, can pull off without relying on the academy or the algorithmic dictates of the attention economy. Usually a good edited collection has good essays, but you only want to read a few. Every essay makes me want to read the other essays because you have a vision. Everyone that you invited, you invited for a reason. You weren't some fake publicist. He's like, hey, someone has a new book, have them on your show. No, you only talk to people because you've read shit by them that you've right, thought right, about that you right. think has value, even if you disagree. So I think that's what's amazing. I believe that I am, like so many others, pioneering a future in which educators can form learning webs that will make learning as a way of life enjoyable and emancipatory. However, before these tools become accessible, they have to be experimented with. That's why I built my own website and app using nothing more than my own saved wages, five patrons, and some small classes of students over the last year. Of course, I also have had my wife Anne's moral support and help with accounting so that I don't get in trouble with the IRS or whatever. In less than a year, Theory Underground has already put out eight courses, two books, one, my book, Time Energy, and the other, Underground Theory, which has over 30 contributors, including works written by students at Theory Underground, some of my fellow travelers, and colleagues in the broader universe of Underground Theory. Beyond the books and courses, though, you will also find interviews, reading exegetical reaction sessions, and live weekly events for working class autodidacts, independent researchers, and renegade academics. These include a variety of clubs and cohorts that meet on a weekly or monthly basis. If you want to get involved, there are four main subscription levels. Think of it like a gym membership, but for your mind. The point is to make learning, practice, and theoretical comprehension a way of life. Support at this stage of the operation is more crucial than ever because my savings were used up over the last year of getting this established. If I can triple my subscribers in the next two months, I can quit my gig at Amazon and focus on this work full time. All I need is a few more people at each of the levels or a couple big time patrons who just want to see it happen. Right now I am doing a patron and site subscriber drive, so excuse the commercial. But if you end up really liking what goes on at this channel, consider signing up soon. If you cannot afford it, but want to get involved with some of the stuff behind the paywall, I have made a financial aid scholarship you can sign up for here in the description. Quick side note, some people ask about the profit motive. At this point, I have not actually made a return on any of my investment in terms of the amount of time energy that I put into things, the amount of savings I've actually put into things, the opportunity cost of the work that I'm doing as opposed to the other kinds of things that I could be doing for money. Uh, but more importantly, I don't actually make enough to pay for my cost of living. The goal is to make enough for my cost of living. And then once that is achieved, everything over that amount is going to go towards expanding the operation to the point where I can hire Michael Downs, AKA Mikey of The Dangerous Maybe, to be a full-time researcher and part-time teacher at Theory Underground. All right, so with that aside, I just wanna say also, if you are a worker with earbuds, what's up? I see you. I work at Amazon part-time and everything I do is for my past self who used to work there full-time. Most workers with earbuds couldn't care less about theory, but I do believe a working class intellectual revolution could grow 
out of the underground theory scene. My hope is that what I have built here will contribute to making the scene something more than just a scene, and you into something more than just a scene kid. We're trying to make this into a real intellectual milieu capable of leading a way forward beyond the imminent crises facing humanity. But for that, we need thinking now more than ever. Start thinking. I hope that you either will or have enjoyed the program. And also make sure to like, comment, subscribe, and leave this playing in the background all the time while you're doing other things. Playing long form theory underground content in the background while you do things has, in the near future, been scientifically proven to emancipate minds from the functional illiteracy imposed on workers by the structural stultification of time energy. This is achieved by re-territorializing circumspective concern. Also, to some degree, it is for the algorithm. Think about like a gym membership before you mind. <laughs> <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> I love you too.